Welcome back everyone, my name is Kelly. And my name is Becky, and you're listening to Tune Into Nature. Today we have two guests who will be joining us for our discussion on fire ecology and the forest and rangeland stewardship major. Our first guest is Camille Stevens-Rimmon. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself, Camille? Yeah, my name is Camille Stevens-Rimmon, as you said, and I am a fire ecologist and assistant professor in the forest and rangeland stewardship department. Our second guest is a good friend of ours, Emma Enabo, who is a part of the CSU and Forest Rangeland Stewardship major. Emma, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, I'm Emma, and I'm a third-year student in Forest and Rangeland Stewardship, and my concentration is Rangeland and Forest Management. And I'm from Colorado, and I love all things outdoors. Awesome. <laughs> Camille, what inspired you to pursue fire ecology and what continues to inspire you to continue in the field? Yeah, so unlike hopefully a lot of your listeners who will be a part of the forest and rangeland stewardship department, my undergrad was in biology. And um, after getting my biology undergrad, I really just wanted to be outside. So I had multiple family members who used to be wildland firefighters, and I decided that seemed like a good thing to maximize my outside time for a while. So I did that for a few years and really allowed me to fall in love with fire and the ecology of those recovering ecosystems after fire. And even though I loved being a firefighter, I kind of got tired of just being outside and wanted to use my brain a little bit more than thinking about how to cut that tree exactly. So I went back to grad school in forestry at Northern Arizona University and then got my PhD at the University of Idaho before coming here. And I really, you know, I think what always inspires me about fire ecology is how amazing our ecosystems are. You know, you see these big events like the ones we've been having and it seems catastrophic and maybe from a human perspective and those values lost, it is catastrophic, but those ecosystems themselves are so adaptable and come back. And it's really beautiful to see recently burned landscapes. I think you just see a whole different side of kind of that reinitiation of an ecosystem. Wow, that is a really cool story. Going back to your firefighting days, what did a typical day look like as a firefighter? Yeah, so when you're on a fire, the days are kind of long. You have uh, generally work a 16-hour shift. So on those eight hours off or the whole eight hours you have to, you know, get set up, your tent set up and go to sleep and then get ready in the morning before you go to breakfast. But um, you do tend to eat breakfast and dinner on the clock. And so uh, that's kind of the start of the day is getting ready, usually crawling out of a sleeping bag that you slept on the ground in. And then uh, there's usually a morning briefing, um, depending on where you are in terms of what kind of crew you're on and the status within a crew. You might attend the full fire briefing or you might just be briefed by your fire crew superintendent or head. And then a lot of the day is spent doing, you know, digging or cutting trees down. Very little of wildland firefighting has to do with water. I know we like to do that. Think about that when we think about structures burning. But a lot of what you do as a firefighter is actually try to remove the fuels, not just wet them. The days that you're using water are probably tougher days because usually you have to pack around that hose on your back up and down hillsides. That's not ideal. I'd rather just carry a chainsaw. 
but yeah, so then you do that. I mean, some of the most fun days are doing things like burnout operations because then you actually get to light fires to try to, you know, basically catch the fire from escaping a line. You know, they've been doing that in other, in some of the fires that we've seen around here to try to build off of those control lines and make sure that when a fire burns up to the edge, you know, up to a road or a line that's been built, that it doesn't escape that line. So doing back burns and burnout operations are one of the really effective ways to stop fire, you know, fight fire with fires. And those can be really fun days because then you actually get to see lots of meaningful change happen in just one shift. That's so interesting to hear what a typical day of a firefighter is like, because I feel like many people, you can only, you just see what you see in movies or TV shows, but to actually hear what you do in the field is really cool. So after hearing what your typical days used to look like, bouncing to Emma, what your days look like at CSU, can you just talk about what your favorite class or professor has been so far um, and what, what's that looking like this semester too? Yeah, so one of my favorite classes was actually this past summer, and we had to move it because of COVID to right before the semester started. So it was two weeks on campus at CSU, and it was forestry field measurement. So we got to do a lot of stuff outside on campus. I think I've measured the trees in Sherwood Forest about 10 times each. And then, so we did a lot of stuff there. And then we went up to the Boy Scout Ranch and then we got to measure trees there, actually make plots in wild ecosystems that aren't on CSU campus, but definitely one of my favorites of just gathering data and seeing how we can use that to understand how we manage the land was really one of my favorite classes so far at CSU. Wow, that sounds like a really fun class. Speaking of talking about Working out in the field and stuff like that, Camille, are there any research opportunities at CSU or otherwise that you'd recommend to students interested in the topic to get involved? Absolutely. I mean, um, all of Warner College has really great research opportunities for undergrads. I think every faculty I know hires undergraduate students for field summer work, including myself. I usually hire three or four students a year to do field work with my graduate students or myself. Another great resource is the Colorado Forest Restoration Institute that uh, I think last summer hired 18 students all from CSU to do field monitoring plots after both treatments and prescribed fires. So there's lots of opportunities, I think, to kind of build on those skills that Emma talked about um, and continue to practice those skills throughout your time here at CSU. Absolutely. And kind of going off the institute that you just mentioned, Emma, I know you told us the other day that you work at the Water Center. Can you tell us what that experience has been like doing outreach and why outreach and education around water is so important right now? Yeah, so I work for the Colorado Water Center. And basically, we try to bring together research that all people at institutions like CSU are doing and then connecting it with stakeholders and government officials and all the people in the community who are involved with water. And it's really important as we go into seeing effects from climate change and then fires and their impact on water quality. There are so many issues involved with water and having everyone kind of understand where they fit in to the whole water community is just really important. Wow, that sounds like a really awesome opportunity, all of these, all of the stuff through the major and through the water center. So speaking 
of like kind of making a name for this major and kind of outreaching. I know that Camille, you had the opportunity to be interviewed by the NPR, which is super exciting. Could you talk a little bit about what the process was like with that and how outreach is really important for majors in Warner? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I do a lot of my research because I want to make a difference in management. You know, I am a, an applied uh, ecologist. And so a lot of my stuff focuses on how we can be managing ecosystems better and and understanding ecosystems more. And um, so I, th- I think outreach is so important, like Emma said, um, just in terms of figuring out where we all fit in that larger picture. And yeah, getting interviewed by NPR is, a, is um, an exciting and nerve wracking thing. I've done it a couple of times now, and it, I have to say it doesn't get less nerve wracking. But I actually had a really funny experience this last time because when the reporter called, I was out in the field on one of my sites down in Southern Colorado and set up a time to meet. And it was like when I thought I would have cell phone reception. And of course, about five minutes before she called or before we were supposed to talk, I, um, my grad student got stuck in the mud uh, it had rained about two inches the night before, and he, like my car vehicle made it through, but his did not. And we spent the next two hours trying to dig him out, and I had no cell phone reception at that exact moment. So I finally got a hold of her, and we talked, and I was actually on within the fire perimeter having the conversation that got aired on NPR. But the lead up to it was very stressful and I was pretty frazzled going into it. You know, I think at one point the vehicle was on three wheels from getting stuck and it was just a mess. But, you know, that, that is uh, part of the adventures of doing outdoor work and I'm glad I connected with her. And it was a nice story in part because she also got to visit some of the bigger fires in Colorado, the reporter did, and with another one of our research associates here in FRS. So uh, it was kind of fun to see multiple people in our department highlighted in that story. What a crazy story. <laughs> I guess that kind of shows the reality of working in these type of job environments is you never really know <laughs> what you get yourself into. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, that sounds kind of hectic, but also definitely really memorable time in the field. So Emma, I know you mentioned how your favorite class, you did measurements at your forest. Is there any other field experiences you had the ability to do through classes or clubs you'd like to share? Or if not, just how do you feel you've been prepared through those experiences so far? And how would you explain that to prospective students, maybe who are looking to try and better understand the um, field work that you've, you, we get to do in water? Yeah, I would say a lot of classes in FRS definitely have some sort of field component. A lot of the plant ID classes I've taken, you'll go out in the field, you'll take collections, press them, put them on sheets, and then you have nice herbarium specimens. Or some of the forestry classes, just going outside, looking at trees. What are these trees at CSU that we're looking at? And then measuring them as I talked about. And I definitely feel prepared of like gathering the data out in the field, but then getting back in the classroom, how do we analyze the data? And then what does this mean when we're looking at management objectives and kind of what our goals are for managing the land? It's really cool to see the interaction between the data and then how we use it to make our management decisions. 
Just a side question. Do you know where you want to go with all of this? Do you know like what you're going to use all these skills for yet? It's totally fine if you don't. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, kind of grand goal. I would like to work for the federal government because I kind of think that's where I personally would be happiest in doing, making the biggest impact that I could. And I would really like to be out in the field working in plant ecology and understanding how the systems work to gather data for those management decisions. Well, it definitely sounds like you're on the right path and in the right major for that. You mentioned management, wildlife management, forest management. That's a big part of classes you've taken. And Becky and I were in fish, wildlife, and conservation bio major. We definitely, that's a lot of our classes as well. So along those management lines of how to best protect our resources, Camille, can you kind of explain how we got to where we are with the massive crown fires that we're seeing in the West right now and how we can better manage that or prepare for that in the future? Yeah, so, you know, the wildfires that we've seen this year are really unprecedented, and uh, there are a couple of things that are making them worse. Certainly, um, probably the biggest influencing factor is climate change. The fires that we're seeing this year, especially near here, like the Cameron Peak fires, burning through ecosystems that are usually what we call climate-limited systems, meaning they have abundant amounts of fuel, right? They're really thick, dense forests with lots of fuel on the ground. And uh, what limits the ability of those ecosystems to burn is that typically by now, in mid-October, we would have snow on the ground in those places. And not having that is kind of what's allowed these fires and the fire seasons to really lengthen and why we're seeing these more extreme conditions. And you can kind of look at what's happening in California in that same way. Those ecosystems may not they may not be limited by snow, but they certainly had an end to the fire season in part because of moisture and rain. And without that and those cooler temperatures, it allows these fires to kind of continue and grow bigger and last longer. Uh, and the other big thing that, you know, is worth mentioning is we are really good at suppressing fires. And we've done that as Western European settlers in the in North America for over 100 years, almost 150 years at this point. And stopping all fires has only allowed those fuels to accumulate. So in uh, those other ecosystems that we generally would have historically thought of as fuel limited, meaning that it's always kind of the right climate maybe, you know, in the summer for a fire to burn. But what would have prevented those large fires from happening is having small fires that clear out little areas and kind of create a mosaic landscape that prevents that next big catastrophic fire from happening. And we've been really good at effectively suppressing fires. As crazy as it is to think about, given the news and all the fires that we have been inundated with this year, we suppress 98% of fires in the United States that start, meaning that it's only those 2% that are causing all of these catastrophic changes. And if we use more of that 98% or you know, effectively treated those landscapes through other fuels mitigations like prescribed fires and thinning, then we, w- we might not have the ability of those fires to get that big, even when the weather was conducive to it. Wow, it sounds like there's a lot of different factors that are affecting that and from like poor management and climate change and uh, everything. So what does this mean for the long-term effects of this? Like what does all these huge crown fires, what does that mean for the West and the rest of the world basically? 
Yeah. So, you know, I think the first thing that unfortunately we have to come to better terms with is that we're never going to stop fires. We live in burnable landscapes and there's no way we're going to stop all wildfires from happening. And I think then it comes to kind of those effects of when we do have the large fires and also what we can do to mitigate those changes, right? We have lots more people every year moving into what we call the wildland urban interface, which is all of those nice cozy cabins with the trees right around your houses that are not going to fare very well when it comes to these fires. So as good as we are as putting out fires, we're also really good fire starters, right? And the vast majority of these large fires are human caused. And so there's a lot still that we can do in kind of preventing that. And when it comes to that post-fire ecosystem, I think one of the big things that we, you know, I love trees and I don't want all of our landscapes to burn. And I, of course, want our ecosystems to come back. But I think there's also a certain amount of acceptance that we have to have that these ecosystems are changing, both with climate change and because of these disturbances. And even if they're coming back in the same way, you know, there's not going to be that beautiful 300-year-old spruce fir forest that was up at the top of Cameron Pass last year is going to be there again in my lifetime. And so I think a lot of it is finding the beauty and accepting those ecosystems for what they have the potential to be going forward. I really love that perspective of just acceptance because I feel like that's something a lot of people are struggling with right now, just with a lot of different things in the world and um, just having that positive outlook about this is just part of the changing world and there's still beauty in that. I think that's a really good way for people to kind of come to terms with things that are happening that are a little unsettling sometimes. So kind of off that, what advice would you give people wanting to help mitigate these damaged by fires and just how to make them feel a little more comfortable with what's happening? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, especially here, all of us in Fort Collins have just been breathing in smoke for like two months. Um, It is stressful, even if you don't love being in the forest, which I know many of us do. So I think there's a there's a few things to think about. You know, there are a lot of collaborative groups and community-led efforts that do a lot of post-fire recovery and restoration work that you can be involved in if you want to do some volunteering. You know, I would imagine that over the next couple of years, there'll be lots of opportunities to do planting and, you know, protection of those waterways, things like that. Because, you know, going back to Emma's work at the Colorado Water Center, water is going to be a big issue with these fires. You know, we here in Fort Collins survive off of the Poudre River, which the top of which is burning right now. And so there's going to be a lot of efforts over the next couple of years to try to mitigate the changes to that water system that have happened and are ha- will continue to happen because of this fire. I think when you think about the moment, what's on your mind right now, I know the things that come up a lot for me are, or that I hear a lot of is what's happening with wildlife and how can we help firefighters. And um, as a former firefighter, I could say that, you know, I got paid and fed very well. So usually you don't have to worry about the firefighter. And if you are wanting to donate or contribute to those fires, I think it's best to focus your efforts on those who are losing their homes and their properties because of fires. I know it's It's our inclination to want to give to those people who are fighting them. But to give you a sense, I think it's mandated by the federal government still to provide 7,000 calories a day to firefighters. So that's a lot of food. (laughs) You're usually pretty well fed. And then the wildlife issues that often come up, 
I know there are some iconic pictures out there. And when we think about the stories that came out at the beginning of the year about the Australia fires and koalas and kangaroos make us worry about those big, iconic, especially mammals that are being impacted by these fires. And the truth is, is most of them are, are okay. They're better at avoiding fires often than we are. And so we don't tend to see a lot of animals that are, you know, killed because of the fire itself. I think what ends up happening in the long term is that their habitat changes. And so we need to kind of think about how we should, what we can do to improve their habitat through time and make sure those animals are coming back and maybe occupying those spaces. But there's also a lot of species that really love burned landscape. You know, think about there's a really cool woodpecker called the black-backed woodpecker. And it is black on its back because it only lives on black trees. It only wants to be on trees that are just burned and are still really black. So, you know, when you're concerned and not liking the way that ecosystem has changed, that it's all black and charred now, remember that there's lots of species that are loving it. And having those openings also allows large wildlife like deer and elk to move through and have more forage over time. So there's a lot of benefits to those burned landscapes. So again, I'd go back to there still is hope, even though it's not, uh, even though it looks different than you would expect. Thank you for that. That was a really amazing explanation of everything that's going on. And that definitely made me feel better that there's hope with this. And and even just thinking about how not every species is able to live in the climax stages of ecosystems. And I think that's something that I've been really learning a lot about in my classes. And I think that's always a good way to think about it is that if we keep all of the ecosystems at one certain stage, then we're not benefiting all of the species. So fire is a good thing. Um, so kind of totally switching gears, Emma, I was wondering if you would be able to share some advice that you'd like to give with students who are interested in going in this major. Yeah, so I would, the way I chose this major is I kind of pulled up all the classes that it involved. Like you can see all the classes that you would have to take for each major. And this one just spoke to me as these are the things I want to do involving plant ID and land management and kind of the whole ecosystem perspective, starting with the vegetation. I know you two are wildlife people, but some of us really love plants. And so there's definitely a space for that. So that was my main thing is really looking at the classes and then reach out. I know there are so many people in the department who are happy to talk to you about all the majors. And I mean, FRS is obviously my favorite, but I mean, there are so many good opportunities. And if you're not sure what you want to do, there's always options for minors and just dipping your toes into other things, figuring out what you like, what you don't like, and then going from there, just trying new things and learning new ways to understand the ecosystem and then finding where you fit into our collective goal of protecting the environment, keeping it for future generations. I think that's a really big thing about Warner is everyone working together for this common goal. And it's really exciting to be a part of that. So that's what I would say to future students. Yeah, I agree for sure about the community in Warner and everyone coming together for that common goal. That's definitely something I felt when I was doing research in ecologies and something that I feel 
every day now just being a Warner student. And I also really like your advice about just dipping your toes in the sand because there's so many cool miners in Warner that even if it's not something you want to center your entire major around, but you still want to have a part of your education, there's so many miners for so many different environmental ecosystem, different aspects of that, that you can get experience with through a minor. So our last question for you all, Becky and I are wanting to ask everyone this semester is, how are you making time for self-care during this semester and during the pandemic, just so we can normalize those conversations and hopefully make our listeners feel a little better? Okay, yeah, I would say you spend a lot of time on the computer. So you definitely have to take the time to turn off the computer and go be outside for a little bit, go hike, go rock climb, do whatever you need to do. And sometimes you just have to let it go. You can get behind on that class and you can go bake some cookies or take the time to relax and just have to be flexible with, okay, I'm going to let that project go for now, but focus on me and being healthy and maintaining levels of happiness for everything that's going on right now since it's crazy so just acceptance (laughs) I think all of that was really good advice and things that I do too I think the other thing that I have really been trying to focus on is just as with this podcast you're normalizing that we're all going through this I think you know reaching out to everybody in your network whether that's your professors your friends whatever it is you know, I think it's okay to be like, I'm sorry, I didn't get that assignment in to your professor or something like that. And I find myself doing that to various people too. Like, I'm sorry, I can't attend another meeting. You know, I need, I need this hour to not be on Zoom. And uh, I have two little kids at home. So that is both a wonderful and crazy frustrating thing at times. And so, uh, especially now, So I feel like I've just been trying to cherish the time that I have with them as much as possible, knowing that there are lots of, that there is time, as Emma said, to do those other things later, probably. There's not much, many other times in our lives, probably, that we will be, um, you know, having these connections that we have with the people you live with. And I think, you know, really fostering those relationships to be strong and good and productive and enjoyable is kind of a key goal for me this semester at least. Well thank you both for sharing all of those tips that was really awesome and that's all we have for this episode of Tune Into Nature. Tune in next time to hear a panel talk about the different perspectives of the Colorado wolf reintroduction that will be on the ballot on November 3rd. See you next time on Tune Into Nature.